There's some kids who don't who don't want to hear me preach for sure. Like, no. Anybody else get up there? I'll tell you what. We sing another song or something? Huh. Okay. Blessed assurance or something? All right. Well, it's good to be back uh, here with you all uh, after having a, a break the last two weeks. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to First John chapter 2 and we'll... Read and study the first six verses together this morning. 1 John chapter 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. The main point of this text is very straightforward. Knowing the God who has made propitiation for us leads to obedience in us. Knowing the God. Not knowing about God. Knowing the God who has made propitiation for us leads to obedience in us. Let me briefly refresh your memory as to where we left off because I believe it's been three weeks since we've been in 1 John on my count. John has introduced us to Jesus Christ as the eternal, fully divine Son of God who has come in the flesh to make fellowship with God Himself possible. He's done so by spilling his own blood so that we can be cleansed of sin as we come to walk in the light. Very succinctly, to walk in the light is to practice the truth in light of confessing the truth. Walking in the light, to practice the truth in light of confessing the truth, the truth about ourselves and who we are, and about God and what he has done with Christ, the truth, to make peace with sinners. And he says that if we say we have not sinned and therefore uh, never have or perhaps we no longer even require forgiveness, John says we're frauds. Those people who say that are frauds and the truth is not in them, not in us if we say that. We deceive ourselves, he says. We are sinners who need forgiveness and we need purification. Here's the thing. Believers have received that in a kind of once and for all way with Christ, but it's very clear that as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to use Paul's language, that that we confess our transgressions and we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. So we read in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, forgive us our transgressions, even as those we forgive, even as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And that leads us there to verse 1, where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. 
He uses this gentle tone, my little children. This isn't supposed to be infantilizing in some kind of demeaning way. It's a tone of affection. It's a tone of gentleness. And it's a tone that says, hey, we're on the same team here. It presumes that he's talking with people who are with him, yet at the same time aren't exactly peers with him. My little children, he he casts himself in this particular place in a fatherly role, and he's going to call them, he refer to them as some other things later, but in this case, he kind of has a disposition of a father towards them. He says, I am writing these things to you, and that might cast your mind back to verse 4, where he's already said, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the second instance of, I'm writing these things to you, and it will not be the last. We talked about it in the, uh, the, the first or second sermon in the series that, that John gives multiple reasons for what, why he's writing, and then I think kind of an umbrella reason. But we see this again. He is writing for a particular reason. He is writing these things. Now, you're going to have to just bear with me here. What are these things? There's discussion. Do these things mean the things he's already said or the things he's about to say or both? And I think the context makes clear he's talking about the things he is about to say and continue on in the letter, okay? His particularly his admonitions. He says, I'm writing these things to you, and then finally we get the payload, so that you may not sin. So that, so just get this here. He has, despite having knowledge that everyone is a sinner, and in fact, that if someone says they're not a sinner, they lie and the truth is not in them, he's writing these things so that they don't sin. In one sense, he acknowledges because of sinfulness that sin is, going, is in one sense inevitable over the course of a human life. Not to mean it's inevitable in every single moment, like you can't do anything about it. But because of, because of our sinfulness, that sin in the run of life is inevitable. And yet, he's writing these things so that you will not do it. I might be certain that my teenager is going to get in a fender bender. Okay? But, but that doesn't mean that I can't say, hey... Here's how you follow with proper distance. Here's good braking procedures so that you don't get into a wreck. That's not inconsistent with knowing in the back of my head that something's probably going to happen, which is why we're getting, you know, well, when I was growing up, a $1,200 car. That doesn't exist anymore. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you do not miss the mark. But, but, second part, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So this is a third class conditional in the Greek, which basically just means even if you looked at the grammar alone, you would know that that if is very likely to happen. If someone does sin, okay, you can tell by the way the conditional structure in the Greek that the author is, is presuming it is going to happen. And he says, there is a solution even when the purpose in my writing to you fails. Even when it's not met. It's not all doom and gloom. Because guess what? There's an advocate. There's an advocate I remember a time in my life where I had very little credibility in a certain area, 
and there was someone who kind of put their credibility on the line. They vouched for me. You ever had that? You ever had someone vouch for you? They're like, no, 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 they're with me. They're good. Like I'm vouching for them. They advocate. That's the word to speak in support of, to speak in favor of. That's what we have in Jesus Christ, an advocate, someone who's speaking supportively in our favor. He's lending his credibility to us because we've been credited with his righteousness. The perfectly righteous son of God in the flesh is our advocate before the father. So if I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but if you do, boy, do I have some good news for you. Boy, do I have some good news for you. You know, the word translated advocate here is the word paraclete. Some of you have heard this word before because it's the word in John's gospel consistently used to describe the Holy Spirit, the helper. So here John pivots and he kind of retools how he's using it. He says, because of what Christ has done, he is able to help. He is able to advocate For us, speak supportively on our behalf. So if we sin, we don't have to despair because the defense attorney is the judge's son who has already served the sentence. Now that is good news right there, brothers and sisters. That's good news. He's already endured the sentence for our wrongdoing. He is our advocate before the Father. So I write these things that you don't sin, but if you do, There's something amazing in store for you. That's how John says, my little children. My little children. He goes on to say that he, that is to say, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Now, this word is the word halasmas. It's only used... Here and in chapter 4, verse 10 in the whole New Testament. Whenever you have that rare of usage, you have everyone debating about what it actually means. Commentators and translators argue over whether this should be translated as expiation or propitiation. Let's explain what those mean. They sound like big words. Propitiation carries the idea of satisfaction of wrath. It has analogs in pagan theology. You might have a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of an angry God who's not sending rain on the crops. But notice, in that picture, there's no purification or anything that happens, right? You're just assuaging the anger of some capricious God who decided to withhold rain, or whatever the case may be. There's wrath satisfaction, but it doesn't have anything to do with purifying anybody. A God is mad, we make a sacrifice, he's not mad. Propitiation. There is a secular pagan, then, I don't know, no, certainly probably not now, but then there's certainly a lot of pagan theology that had the idea of propitiation, which certainly doesn't mean it's not a biblical concept, but it's just not, that's the, not the only place that it, where we find it. That doesn't involve purification, though. On the other side, you have those who want to translate halasmos as expiation. Well, what is expiation? Well, think of expiation. You think of Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, where the sins of the people are taken and they are put put on the, the scapegoat, which is the goat for Azazel in the Hebrew, and sent out into the wilderness. 
Okay, notice right there in that particular part of the ceremony, there isn't wrath satisfaction going on. There's guilt removal and purification going on. I'm sending away sin. Okay, and there are some views of the atonement that say, no, 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 what happened on the cross isn't that Jesus took sin. It wasn't penal substitution. It was just expiation only. God sent away sin without punishing a substitute. Okay, so you can see how people who, who have a dog in the fight about uh, who gets to be saved and, and uh, is, uh, universalism is going to come into play here. kind of want to translate this word. The NIV, by the way, it, it has a beautiful, it punts. It doesn't make a call. Okay, it translates it as atoning sacrifice. Okay, well done. Well done. But in one sense, I think that's a good way to look at it for the reason I'm about to explain. It may sound like a cop-out, but what Scripture really does seem to suggest is that in the case of sacrifice for sin, and when you look at the parallels of this word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this becomes even more, this this becomes clarified. It doesn't seem that the two in reality can actually be separated when we're talking about sacrifice for sin particularly about atoning sacrifice for sin. Um, It seems that Christ's propitiation involved purification, but also satisfying the wrath of God. And those two things are just as inseparable as having Jesus be one's Savior, but also Jesus be one's Lord. Like, can we talk about the conceptual difference between Jesus as the rescuer and Jesus the king who gives marching orders? Yes, we can. Can I only embrace Jesus as one of those things? No, I cannot. John's going to make that clear. But the idea of, of halosma seems to be it's kind of a package deal when we're talking about sacrifice for sin, that there is propitiation and expiation. That's why we read in John's gospel, he says of those uh, who are unholy, who have not been sanctified, he said, whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. John 3.36. Sure seems like those who are in Christ have God's wrath removed from them because of what Christ did. Sure sounds like wrath was poured out on a substitute and was satisfied for those who aren't in Christ. God's wrath remains on them. And they'll taste that wrath. If they don't repent, believe the gospel, they'll taste that wrath in hell. And right here, John has already talked about in the, in the previous section about the blood of Christ that cleanses and purifies us from all unrighteousness. So instead of trying to focus on one or the other aspect of atoning sacrifice, it's better to view this word as a a connected package, that what Christ accomplished is satisfying the wrath of God, but also purifying and cleansing sinners. You can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. Having said that, John does say that Christ is the propitiation. Did you catch that? Isn't that odd? Commentators have noticed this. Uh, and I noticed this, it was very gratifying to, to, to work through, I try to work through the passage before I turn to a single commentator. I, I noticed this, and then I found commentators saying, isn't this weird? It made me feel very affirmed in my exegesis. It says Christ is the propitiation, not that he made propitiation. Wait a second. Oh, wait. Christ is a divine human person. What do you mean he is the propitiation? It's a good question. It's an identity statement, but it seems like John is getting, he doesn't think... He's not confused that his readers think that Jesus literally is a sacrifice. He knows that that Jesus made sacrifice, but why does he phrase it this way? He is the propitiation. Phrases it as an identity statement. I think that's going to help us out in the back half of the verse. So just, it's a little seed I'm planting. I'm going to come back to it, okay? He says, 
that his propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It might seem odd to talk about Jesus being the wrath satisfaction and being the purification for the whole world. And in fact, universalists, and I'm reading a book by David Bentley Hart right now, That All Shall Be Saved, uh, seize upon these very passages to justify that one day everyone will be saved. Why? Because ultimately God's made purification for everybody. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for everybody. That's why. Atonement works. Did you read the Old Testament? Atonement is effective. And I would agree with atonement is effective. Okay? Atonement is effective. Well, what's going on here? But even John doesn't understand the doesn't understand it like there's not going to be anyone uh, who goes to hell, who doesn't suffer eternal death. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, he's going to talk about a sin that leads to death. And he's not talking about kicking the bucket. He's talking about eternal damnation. There is a sin that leads to death, understood eschatologically. Final death, eternal death. So he doesn't think that everyone has the wrath of God removed from them or will. What's he saying then? This word world, cosmos, it's used 23 times in 1 John. 23 times. And what it means changes in certain settings, in certain contexts. In this case, if you're listening carefully, the world is contrasted with what? It's contrasted with our sins. That is to say the sins of those John is communicating to that he presumes are Christians, but not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world here. So the world is going to have two layers. It's going to have two layers. John has this thick concept of things, it seems. But one is those who are in darkness. If we're trying to honor the keep our integrity exegetically intact, we have to say that. He's a propitiation for our sins. Roughly, something like the sins of believers who are believers who have embraced Christ at this moment, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And one layer of that is going to be those who are, in fact, in darkness, who have not embraced Christ, who have not been purified. This kind of universal language isn't isolated in John. Consider 1 John 4.14, and we have seen and testify the Father that has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. In the Gospel of John, John 1.36, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16, Here's how God loved the world. He loved the world in this manner. That's what it says. He sent His only begotten Son so that all those who believe in Him, all believing ones, shall not perish but have eternal life. He loved the whole by doing something that will benefit a subset of people within it. That is to say, the believing ones. Those who believe. Perhaps the closest parallel of the kind of 4X but not only X language seems to be the unwitting prophecy by the high priest Caiaphas in John 11. Listen, what he, Remember what he says? He says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you, talking about Jesus, that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. But verse 51 has a, a, an inspired commentary on what Caiaphas said. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, 
but also to gather into the children of God who are, into one, excuse me, the children of God who are scattered abroad, who are everywhere across the face of the earth. So pulling some together some of the threads here, what are we to make of this John telling us that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the world? I simply understand it in a way that is consistent with how he talks about Jesus being Savior in John, uh, in the Gospel of John, and in 1 John, uh, later in 1 John as well, but also with the New Testament's teaching and his own teaching that there will in fact be people who taste eternal death. And that is that Jesus is the propitiation, meaning, and here's why we're circling back to that first point, he is the only one. He's the propitiation for the whole world. There's not another one. For those of us who have fellowship with God, but also for those who do not have fellowship with God in every tribe, tongue, nation, who are going to come out of darkness, but they're not yet out of darkness. So let me give you a theological category that you may not have. In John 10, 26, Jesus, the Jews are asking him if he's the Christ. Give us a straight answer. And he says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Remember that? You do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, we tend to say things the other way around. Well, hold on, wait a second. I would say that someone's not a sheep because they don't believe. Well, that might be theologically correct, but John's got a category for someone who is a sheep, but they haven't yet believed. He says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. The sheep comes logically prior to the belief in John's taxonomy of things. I'm suggesting that the verse says that Christ has satisfied God's wrath for sheep who have not yet believed and are currently a part of the world walking in darkness, like Paul says, we were like the rest of them, objects of wrath, who are going to be drawn out of every lifestyle, idolatry, country, creed, class, geographic location into the light. People of every kind from everywhere across the whole world. Karen Job sums it up well. She says, in the ancient world, the gods were parochial, which is a word that means very narrow-minded, near nearsighted, had geographically limited jurisdictions. In the mountains, one sought the favor of the mountain gods, on the sea of the sea gods. Ancient warfare was waged in the belief that the gods of the opposing nations were fighting as well, and the outcome would be determined by, the, by whose god was the strongest. Against this type of pagan mentality, John asserts that the efficacy of Jesus Christ's sacrifice is valid everywhere, for people everywhere, that is to say, the whole world. The Christian gospel knows no geographic, racial, ethnic, national, or cultural boundaries. Rather than teaching universalism, John here instead announces the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. Since Christ's atonement is efficacious for the whole world, there is no other form of atonement available to other peoples, cultures, and religions apart from Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of kind of what's going on here. Joe Biden is the president of the United States, okay? He became the president of the United States. Now, here's the thing about it. He's the president whether you like him or not. He's the president whether you voted for him or not. He's the president regardless of what you think about the election. None of that matters. He's the president. He's the president of this country, and he's the only one. He's the only one. 
He is the President of the United States of America, and Christ is the one who has made atonement for the world. Anyone, anywhere in the world, only has one place to go if they want to come out from under the wrath of God, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what I understand this to be teaching. You trying to honor John's vocabulary and honor this context. Now, what follows from that incredible reality? What follows and flows out of this indicative, how things are, are some imperatives. In verses 3 through 6. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. We've already talked about the first of multiple I am writing. This is the first of many, by this we know. By this we know. And if you notice, that's what the, I kind of titled the sermon series. By this we know. Over and over and over again in 1 John. By this we know. But he uses the word know in two different senses in the same verse, doesn't he? By this we know cognitively that we know God intimately. That's the idea. By this we are aware that we are in deep, intimate fellowship with God. He gives us some concrete evaluation measures, and the measure of if we know Him is if we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments. Now, this is the first time we're seeing commandments here, and it's in the plural. You might think it's initially talking about maybe the Ten Commandments. Hey, this is not a bad guess. Um, but John uses this word in his own writing quite specifically to refer to, in most cases, he's talking about Christ's command to love one another. Christ's command to love one another, but perhaps even a more comprehensive lens for the commandments is summed up in John, 1 John excuse me, 3.23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Okay? That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. That's how we know if we're in Him. If we're in Him. If we know Him. If we have that fellowship, that koinonia with God. We can look and say, do I keep His commandments? Do I keep His commandments? And then he talks about how to spot a fraud. He says, whoever says, I know him. Do you know Jesus? I do. I do. I'm one of, I know Jesus. Certainly. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And it doesn't matter how much they protest to the contrary or talk to you about whatever experience they had or have or whatever. He says they're a liar and the truth is not in him. The truth is not in him. Notice that last section is we said, well, if we haven't sinned, the truth is not in us. This time it says someone claims to know God intimately but doesn't keep his commandments. They're, they're the ones who's a liar and the truth is not in them. It's a lot of ways to be a fraud in John's theology. To be clear, it's not talking about perfection. It's not talking about perfectly obeying a commandment. John already made that clear that that's not going to happen. Remember verse 1? If you sin, if we sin, right? He, and if we say we have not sinned the truth, he obviously assumes that there's going to be sin. 
But he's not talking about whether or not someone has any sin. He's talking about a life that reflects obedience. A life that reflects obedience. A life that trends toward Christ. A life that seeks to follow the words of Christ and and the commands of Christ. Particularly to love one another. And it says if someone's life doesn't reflect obedience, they're a fraud. They can claim to know God all day long. But the trump card is, you don't obey His commandments though. When I look at your life, even when you look at your life, there's no obedience. You just mail it in. Think that the gospel is some kind of fire insurance for hell. You're a fraud. That's what John says. In contrast to that though, he says... But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected or completed or completed. The love of God here is ambiguous. Love of God, does that mean God's love for us or our love of God? But I would say that it's far more likely than not that it's talking about our love for God is brought to completion. Surely that's why he says in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God. Do you love God? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That is how love is perfected. So let me give an illustration. I love my wife. My love for her tragically is very imperfect. But let me tell you What is certainly true. My love for her is not completed just by me saying, I love you. It's not. It's how I live in fellowship with her despite my failures. Despite the ways in which I am a disappointment or a frustration. Despite needs that I'm not able to meet. Despite my own sin. What completes my love for my wife imperfectly is not me claiming to love her, but showing my love in our relationship. By showing it. True love shows up and it acts. True love shows up and it acts. That's true in our relationships with one another. It's true in our relationship with God. It's not possible to love God deep down in your heart and nowhere else. People who are filled up with love of God personally and inwardly leak obedience publicly and outwardly. People who are filled up with love of God personally and inwardly leak obedience publicly and outwardly. It just flows out of them. And in that... Their love of God is brought to completion. It's not just talk. It's not just empty talk. It's faithfulness that fulfills faith. That's what John says. He closes with saying this. We get the second that we may know. By this we may know that we are in Him. He introduces language that everyone remembers from the gospel. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
abide. To be truly in and to remain in. To be truly in, not just artificially connected. Not just artificially connected. To be truly in and to remain in. Abide in me and I in you, he says. The one abiding, whoever says, yes, I abide in the vine. Yes, that is true of my life. They should be walking the way Christ walk. And how is that? Well, the passage has already told us righteously. Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Abiding in Christ means walking like Christ. And someone says, I abide in Christ, but I don't walk in the manner Christ walked with a regard for holiness before the Father. They're a fraud. They're a fraud. And no amount of tears or explanations or qualifications. It's it. It's some of the most straightforward language we get in the New Testament about identifiers here. It really is. Knowing the God who has made propitiation for our sin, I'm sorry, propitiation for us leads to obedience in us. To restate the main point. Knowing the God who has made propitiation for us leads to obedience in us. Now I want to make one focused point of application in light of some of this. Because this is rich. This is so rich. Christ is our safety in sin and our motivation towards holiness. I want to recycle an illustration that I've used before. Because it's hard to come up with good ones, frankly. My mom is one of these uh, people whose finest hour is having a stain brought to her on a piece of clothing and getting it out successfully. Okay? Some of you have a mom like that. Some of you are that mom. Whatever. I'm not. Uh, I can't get stains out. If I get grease on my shirt, I'll just probably throw it away. I don't know. Yard shirt immediately. No hope for it. But here's the thing. Growing up as a kid, I knew that my mom was a magician in the laundry room. But I also knew that for some of the stains, I mean, if we played baseball, you got those white pants that you slide on dirt with. Like, I always wondered who thought that was a good idea, but they didn't ask me. Um, I understood the effort that it took her, because I, watch, I washed it. I, wa- I washed it. I watched it. Uh, from her as she washed it many, many times. And it was quite a process. Sometimes it wasn't just like, oh, we'll put this little on it and throw it in the... No, no, no. She had like a regimen and it was... It's, it was. She's like packing serious heat when it comes to stain fighting. Okay? And it took time and it took effort. But at the same time, I knew that she'd get the stains out of my clothes. And here's what it simultaneously made me do. It simultaneously made me not want to stain my clothes out there in the yard doing whatever. But it made me not afraid to go play. Because I knew that if I did, I had someone who could remove that. Simultaneously, it did this, it did two things simultaneously. It motivated me to not get stains on my clothes because I knew how much effort and the cost of getting them out. I knew that, but at the same time, it made me play in the freedom that if I did, there was a stain remover, a very competent one, 
coming right behind that saying. And that right there, sitting right there, is what that is the essence of living in light of gospel freedom. That is true freedom right there. Christ motivates us towards holiness while at the same time helping us not be terrified of sinning because we have an advocate in Him. Which one do you tend toward? Do you tend to? Everyone probably tends toward one degree or another. Maybe you're 50 50. But do you tend towards stain avoidance or reckless play? Hmm? Which one do you tend to? Stain, stain avoidance or reckless play? If you had to say, which one do you struggle with more? Some of you, and it tends to be the more rule following types, I'll say, primarily understand uh, or can lapse into understanding keeping the commands of God negatively, avoid sin. And that works better for you because it's extremely clear what to do. Identify the things not to do. Don't do them. Because if I do, I'll be chastened by God and His fatherly love and I don't want that to happen. Identify the things not to do. Avoid those sins. Things will go well for me. I said in Sunday school, I'm going to risk a football analogy. So here we go. Nick Saban has multiple times, that's the coach of the University of Alabama, uh, by the way. Uh, Nick Saban has multiple times had quarterbacks who are competing for the starting job at the beginning of the season. It's not clear who's going to be QB1. And what he does in testing them on the field is he gives them both a certain amount of series to play no matter what. Even if they're doing horrible. And this isn't a real game. Not just practice game. This is an A-day game. Real game. Real game. People have asked him, why? If a quarterback is doing poorly in the game, why don't you just pull him? You're trying to win. And he said this. He says, no one performs well when they think they're going to get benched every time they make a mistake. They have to feel a certain sense of security and freedom to be able to throw the ball the way they need to throw it and to make the kind of passes that set them apart from the average quarterback. The person who's always afraid of throwing a pick is not going to make... They're going to you know, drop it off to the receiver out in the flat, okay? They're not going to make that awesome throw because they're scared. Oh, that could be an incomplete pass, but this one, it's a safe one. It's a, and they, it causes someone to not play freely and he recognizes this is no matter what happens you're going to get this number of series with the team so that you can feel that freedom and brothers and sisters if, if you're kind of one of these rule following sin avoiders and we all should be avoiding sin but i hope you understand how i'm how i'm creating this kind of framework and polarized sense of thinking about this if kind of being a rule following sin avoider is your practical mantra please consider that christ offers you freedom as our advocate Okay, you don't have to be waiting for God to whack you with a stick uh, every time you walk around a tree because you sinned in this way. Other side is the people for whom holiness almost seems optional, or at least it's very downplayed. They're more of the reckless kind, not the stain avoiders, the eh, get the stain out. Holiness seems more optional provided they believe the right things. Hey, they've got good theology, right? So they know that God will forgive them. And they know that, hey, when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
So the imperatives of the Christian life begin to fall to the back burner. Whether I do this or not, not so concerned about what kind of language that I use, make little excuses about it, pretend I'm a philosopher of language. It's okay, context, body, body. Not so concerned about the kind of things that I watch. Not so concerned with the way I treat this or that person. Not so concerned with being gentle or whatever. Not so concerned with always telling the truth. Because of Christ. See how that bow gets put on it? Because of Christ. Because of what He's done. That's the person who's saying, ah, whatever, mom's going to get the stain out. I don't care. Let's slide in the mud. John doesn't have a category for that. And I ask you this question, if that's one of, if that's you, if you tend toward that side of things in your heart, your life, I'd ask you to consider if you would ever have that disposition towards anyone else in life advocating for you doing anything. Someone advocates for you. Pick any context. And then... You do things that require their sacrifice. Even if they've already, even in, even in one sense, they've already vouched for you in a sense of the word. You require things, eh, whatever. They'll advocate for me. They're going to speak a good word for me, so I can do this, and eh, whatever. They'll keep speaking good words for me. If you wouldn't treat an advocate in any other context of life like that, why think that that's an acceptable way to come before Christ Jesus? It's not. Someone who advocates for you, you treat differently. You don't just keep saying they'll advocate for me. You look at who they are, what they're doing, and you say, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Thank you so much for giving me your credibility here. How should I walk? And the person who just keeps saying, doesn't matter because they'll keep advocating. It's in dangerous ground. Dangerous territory. Perhaps you need to guard your heart with more vigilance. Proverbs 4.23 You need to keep more watch on your life and doctrine. Maybe you need to work on perfecting the love of God. Through obedience. Whatever you tend to do, the key to living in light of the gospel, in light of the freedom that Christ provides, that motivates towards holiness, but that gives us security and safety even when we sin, is right here in verse 1 and 2. And that's why verse 3 and 6 flow out of it. Let me conclude with a call to those who hear these words and say, I'm a liar and the truth isn't in me. But guess what? There's good news. There is someone who has come into this world. There's only one person, but it doesn't matter because of who it was. It's the second person of the Trinity. God the Son came into the world and made propitiation. There's a propitiation that's been made in this world. And you can be cleansed from that. You can be cleansed from your lying. You can be cleansed from your sin. It's time to come out of darkness, if that's you today. Maybe you're sitting here. You're, you're one of our older children. You've heard the gospel over and 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 over. And over. You, just, you just played church. Parents bring you here. Maybe you're someone else here. I just played church. I just want to show up. 
Ask yourself, is that, is that you? And if so, there's good news. There is an advocate that can be had. Repent, believe the gospel. He is able and he is willing. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to have an advocate such as Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We pray when we consider and count the cost of the sacrifice of your son, that it would cause us to both strive for holiness and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, but also know that if we sin, we have an advocate so that we can live in freedom. That we would not use freedom to indulge the flesh, but that we would be embodiments of the idea that it is for freedom that Christ Jesus has set us free. Lord, please forgive us our, uh, of our internal dialogues that attempt to rationalize things, explain away our sin, our shortcoming, because it makes it feel better about ourselves and helps us inhabit a better, less painful narrative. Would you help us tell the truth about ourselves to God and to one another so that we can walk in the light, be known, 